I think we've all heard the expression at one time or another that freedom is never free. That when you experience the blessings of freedom and liberty, that someone has paid some price, if not with their lives, for that freedom. And that we ought to take it with such both seriousness, but also a deep joy. You know, we're in this section of Matthew here from 17 to 20, where he's speaking about the nature of discipleship. Uh, That is, he's instructing us on how to be disciples. And our passage today is really quite a unique passage where he speaks to the liberty of the Christian, the freedom that the Christian ought to enjoy because of Jesus Christ. And he's really going to do two things. You're going to see when we go through the text, there's a little kind of vignette in Galilee, and then there's another little vignette in Capernaum. So there's two little stories here, but they both work toward the same goal. And that is about the liberty or the freedom of the Christian. The one is going to speak about how he's going to earn that freedom, the cost of freedom that Jesus himself will pay for us. And then the next part in Capernaum will be about the characteristics or what does that life look like when we live in the light of liberty? How do we live as free Christians? So there's two little pieces here, the cost of what freedom is and what he has paid, and then also the characteristics of what life ought to look like for the disciples who are walking in freedom. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 17, and we'll read 22 through 27. 22 through 27. Matthew records, And they were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for myself. So let's just look at Galilee. So look with me at 22 and 23. They're in Galilee. Now you know they've come from the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples are separated at that point. They're gathered together again and they're... um, They're gathered together, and they're about ready to head to Jerusalem, head south to Jerusalem. This is the last time Jesus will be in Galilee for his entire earthly ministry. He's heading to Jerusalem now, and you can tell that he's still instructing them about what it is to be a disciple. And his instruction in this case, and he's six months away from death. So even though his death is imminent, he is still instructing them, and what his instruction is now is over his own death. He's instructing us how to prepare for his death and why he is dying. And that's why he says that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. It's interesting that Jesus, this is the second time he predicts his own death. Now he's predicting his death so as to encourage the disciples that when he does die, it's not a surprise, it's not an accident. It's not evidence of defeat that this had been the plan of God. 
This isn't a shock. They shouldn't be surprised by this. He's going to be delivered up. In other words, we often think of that, that expression, he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. We think what comes to our mind usually would be Judas. That Judas delivered Jesus over with the kiss, no less. Or we think about Caiaphas, that is the head of the Sanhedrin, the high priest. that He delivered Jesus over to the Roman authorities. Or maybe we think of Pilate, Pilate the Roman uh, governor, that he delivered him over to the executioner. Everybody's delivering Jesus over, but make no mistake about it, God has delivered Jesus over. Nobody can take Jesus' life from him. He says in John 10, 18, I lay my life down. I have power to lay my life down and take it up again. So, so Jesus is not being taken without his submission. That God, it says in Isaiah 53, it was God's pleasure to crush the Son. God had a plan, a predetermined plan of redeeming the world and bringing freedom to the sons and the daughters of God. Peter got this, though, after the resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, we read, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see the same language there, that it was God's plan to deliver the Son so that through his death we might be free. We might be free from sin and shame and guilt. We might be free from the bondage of sin. But Paul picks up and says the same thing in Romans 8. He says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up or delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So I want us to see clearly that, that Jesus' predictions are to encourage us. He knows what's happening. It's part of God's plan to bring about redemption for the world. But this delivering over to death, it doesn't stay in death. You can see within the same prediction, he says, and he will be raised on the third day. This is very important because just to die doesn't serve anybody with anything. Everybody dies. For Jesus just to die, it's no big deal. He has to be raised. And Paul says this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. In other words, it's useless. What I do week after week after week, it won't help you. It won't serve you well at all. Paul says later, he says, if Christ is not raised, you're still dead in your sins. I mean, you still have the problem of facing God with your sins at the end of death. In fact, he says this. He says, if in this life, we only have hope for, if we only have hope in Christ, we are men and women to be pitied. In other words, if, if Christ is a placebo, if he's just helping us get along in life, and well, it makes me feel better about this life, but the end is still the same, then we're pitiable. But that's not the case. See, the importance of Jesus, not just predicting his death, but also his resurrection, is that we know by the resurrection that God has accepted his sacrifice as sufficient to redeem people. Do you understand that? The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead isn't meaning that we get to live forever alone. It does mean that. But what it means is God says, yes, I accept what you have done on behalf of your people, and I will forgive them, and I will justify them, and I will reconcile them, and I will adopt them. So the resurrection is God's crowning acceptance of all that Jesus Christ has done. 
So this is huge and good news. But you see the disciples, look at what it says at the end of 23. They were greatly distressed. In other words, the disciples, I want you to see, they're starting to get it. They're starting to understand this isn't going to just end up in a victorious kingdom march on the way to Jerusalem. They're beginning to get it, but they can't see through the pale of death at this point. They've got the death down. They haven't heard and understood the nature of the resurrection. And that's why they're deeply distressed. That words mean, the word means that they're deeply sorry. You can imagine when someone is given the word, they have cancer, they have so much left to live, there's a deep sadness and sorrow. And they can't see yet behind that. But for the Christian here, we can. We can. We are on the other side of the resurrection. This, for us, shouldn't lead you to distress. That's why we sing, to the cross of Christ I cling. This is good news. Think about what his death has done. Think about the freedom that it's brought to us. For example, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. In other words, sin has brought about God's just punishment. But according to the scriptures, that Jesus has satisfied God's demand for justice. So now God can remain holy and just, but because of the substitutionary work of Jesus, he can now justify us, he can now forgive us. We don't have to stand under the weight of that sin. We don't have to pay the penalty for that sin. We are free from that. You will not face God for the penalty of your sin. That's significant. There is no no debt to pay. But not just the penalty of sin, the shame of sin. Think about it, if you will. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 2 with the first couple, the original couple. It says they were naked and they were unashamed. There was no sin, and so they didn't have that shame. You know sin causes shame. When when you do something clearly contrary to God's, God's law, God's word, you feel that sense of embarrassment, shame. If any of you in your minds were all of a sudden broadcast and every wicked thought that you have had or will have were just broadcast through these speakers right now, I mean, there wouldn't be a hole big enough for you to fall in. The shame that would come upon us. And that's what sin does, is causes shame before God and before each other. And so in Genesis 2, they were naked and unashamed. When sin entered the world, what happened? It says in Genesis 3, they saw their nakedness, and they were ashamed. So the idea of being naked, which it is, well, not as much in our culture today, but used to be when you were naked, there would be a measure of shame. Now it's something to glorify. But, but, but normally, in the history of man, it has been a point of shame. And so, and so that nakedness in Genesis 3 revealed that now they're not right with God or each other. But when you think about the cross of Jesus, he hung there, and it it shouldn't surprise us that he hung there naked. He was naked on the tree. Why? To remind everybody, if they had the wisdom to know that the nakedness that Jesus, he was bearing not just the sin, but the shame associated with our sin. So now for the Christian here, you don't have to feel distant from God when you repent of your sin. You don't have to feel that sense of, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me. Well, I can't go to God just yet because of the pornography I dabbled in. I better do something good for the kingdom and then I can approach God. That's not the case. He bore the shame of our sin. So the embarrassment that you look back over your past week and you think, I can't believe I fell in that sin again. No, you run to the cross. You cling to the cross. 
Because he bore that shame. God is accepting you because of Christ. Not because you've resolved to do better this week. It's Jesus Christ bearing your shame. And so you're free. You don't have to have that on-off relationship with God anymore. But not just that. It's the wrath of God you've been freed from. Think about it. When, when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked for the cup to pass by. The cup was the wrath of God. So when Jesus Christ had our sins placed upon him and God brought his just judgment upon Jesus, what, is, what does Jesus say? That cry of their election. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was verbalizing the judgment that he was facing from God. So if God has judged the Son, he won't judge us. Do you know what that means? That means when you die, if you were to die today in Christ, you would never face God with a catalog of your sins, and you're going to now do justice over those sins. He's borne your wrath. He's taken God's fierce and righteous anger upon himself for you. You're free. You can die in faith and without fear. Paul says this in Romans. He says, for while we were still weak, at the very right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I mean, now, the proverbial wait till your father comes home would send shivers up my spine as a child. Judgment was coming, and it was usually not going to be a word of encouragement to me when my mother would say that. Just that's a small foretaste of what judgment is like. And you know what? We are freed from that. We are freed. Not because we've had a good week, not because of our resolutions, but because Jesus has, in fact, borne it all. But we're also freed from the fear of death. You know, that's what the disciples couldn't get through. They couldn't see beyond the death of Christ. And oftentimes we as Christians can't see beyond our own death. We're, we're troubled, we're distracted, we're overwhelmed, we're, we're kind of captivated by what will it be like? When will it be? How will it be? How will I make it through? What's on the other side? And yet he's removed this fear of death. Why? Because he's the first fruits having been raised again. Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So sin brings death and death brings fear, but he has freed us from that because he's paid for our sin and he's been raised to new life. So when you think about the freedom that Jesus has wrought for us, I mean, if you're a Christian here, do you remember that you were once a slave to sin? You didn't feel like a slave because you didn't have shackles on your wrists or your ankles, but you did everything it wanted you to do. So do you remember that you were a slave to sin? Do you remember that you were dead in your trespasses? And now you'll never face condemnation for sin? You'll never face that distance from God? You'll never have God sitting back with his arms crossed, wondering if he's going to accept you or not? That's, you're free from all that. I mean, it is a point of rejoicing for us. It's a point of thankfulness. I mean, if gratitude should not mark us, then I think it is because we don't fully understand the nature from which he has freed us and made us free in him. If you're not a Christian here, there is a sense of freedom that you do enjoy. I mean, you can cut the grass if you want, you get up when you want, 
But there is a freedom that the Bible says you don't enjoy. For example, for the non-Christian, the non-Christian cannot enjoy freedom, for example, just to change, to change his life, to move toward holiness. The non-Christian can't stop putting himself at the front of all of his decisions. The non-Christian can't decide, I'm going to live for the glory of God. These things are by grace. And the the internal change, we can do some outward self-reformation, no doubt. But that inward, destructive, self-protective, self-serving, we can't change apart from the grace of God. And if you're not a Christian here, and you are overwhelmed with your inability to ever really experience life-giving change, and that's what the Bible calls to be born again, that the heart of stone, that inner part of us that never seems to really change, even though we can dress it differently on the outside, that's only changed by the grace of God. And it's only changed through repentance and faith, seeking God, asking for forgiveness of sins, and asking Christ to give us new life. Apart from that, it's all external change alone. That's how the Bible explains it. So, so here in Galilee, Jesus is just reminding them. He's instructing us, people, you have been freed in Christ if you have faith in Christ. Can you rejoice in that? Can you give thanks for that? Can you look at this week ahead of just being grateful for all that is now yours because of Christ and let it move with a gratitude towards Christ. Let it move with a worship toward him but not just he doesn't just talk about the cost of freedom here and what he has paid for us but he talks about the life of freedom this is where it gets a little bit dicier here so look with me back at 24 it says they came to perm the tax collectors of this two drachma tax now remember they're heading south they're going to jerusalem this is jesus's last journey capernaum was peter's hometown and it's where it's where Uh, Jesus has made his kind of base of operations. So they're entering this town, and these tax collectors... By the way, Matthew is the only gospel writer that records this story, most likely because he was a tax collector. But but they're calling for this two drachma tax. A drachma was worth one day's wages for a common labor. So it wasn't chump change, but it was a day's work, and you had to pay... Two drachma. And what this tax was levied on was any adult male over 20 for the upkeep of the temple. Now, this isn't, you won't find this in Scripture, but it does have its roots in Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus chapter 30, Moses had levied a tax during the census. They were counting the men of Israel, and every man, every adult male counted in the census had to pay a half a shekel, which were two drachma, had to pay half a shekel. And this this tax that Moses levied on the people of Israel was to remind them that they had sinned and were indebted to God. In other words, you are indebted to God. You need a redeemer. You need someone. That's what he was teaching them. Now, this tax here is a bit different. It came from that. That's what they... That's what they found its roots in. But this tax, it wasn't a Roman tax, of course, and it it was only a voluntary tax. It wasn't compulsory. But it wasn't a tax in the law. It was more of a patriotic tax, more of a nationalistic tax. It's more of a, yeah, this is the upkeep of our temple in our land. And so the tax collector comes to, that's a little background, tax collector comes to Peter and says, hey, does your master pay this tax? And Peter says, yes. 
I, I probably with a little bit of without thinking, he just says yes. Well, when he comes into the house, Jesus immediately asks him a question about that. Now, doesn't it leave you a little uncomfortable that Jesus knows what we think? I mean, Jesus just seems to know everything that you think and know. It, it can almost be a little, yeah, it can be a little uncomfortable when we look at him as not our redeemer. When we look at him as the one who died for us, we can just open our minds to him and say, help me. God, have mercy on me. You know it's in my mind right now. Deliver me. And then at the same time, enjoy the gospel that will forgive us. So we don't have to be threatened by his omniscience. We can actually be thankful that I don't have to hide anything anymore. He loves me in spite of my sin, and I can just rest in that. So Jesus, of course, knows Peter. You'd think Peter would get this by now. But again, Peter's our poster child for sanctification, right? It's a slow go, but Peter ends up well, and so will we. So he asked Peter, this, and he asked this question. He says, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, I want you to see that in this vignette here in Capernaum, Jesus is going to kind of give his life as an example for us. It's kind of a parable for us. In other words, how do we live in light of the freedom that he just earned? He's going to show it to us. And he lives, Jesus lives as a freeman. He lives as a free person. Notice what he says. From whom do the kings of the earth take their toll or tax, from their sons or from others? Now, Peter answers quickly, from others. Everybody would know the answer to that question. Kings don't pay taxes. Why? Because they own everything. They don't have to pay tax to themselves. And everybody in the king's family, they don't pay taxes, right? Princes, princesses, they never pay taxes. It's always been that way. Only until modern democracies have presidents and prime ministers pay taxes. It wasn't until 1993 that the Queen of England began to, pre began to pay personal income tax. Why? Well, the Queen of England, you don't pay taxes, you're the queen. And, but Jesus here is saying the family, those in relationship to the king, don't pay taxes. They're free. What Jesus is revealing to us about himself is he's free. He doesn't need to pay this tax. He's the son of God, right? The temple is all pointing to God. The temple, if you will, is God's. And so Jesus is saying, I'm God's very son. And everything that the temple is there for, to help men, women reconcile themselves to God through the shedding of blood and the sacrifice offered, all of that, all of that sacrificial system helping us move towards God, kind of teaching us of the need for a savior, Jesus doesn't have that. He hasn't sinned. He hasn't, there's no blemish on Christ. He doesn't need to confess his sins. He has none. He has no need for sacrifice. He has no need for reconciliation. He's one with the Father. So he doesn't, he's totally and completely free. But we don't just see Jesus being free. We also see him being humble. Notice what he says. He says in 25 or 26, or maybe we'll just jump all the way to 27. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and you'll find a shekel in the, in the, fish of the, in the, mouths, in the mouth of the fish and take it and give it to them. So Jesus, in his freedom, he's led into humility. He is not obligated to pay a tax, but he pays it anyway so as to not give people a stumble. And this is an important principle, and this is going to be a hard one. I need you to help me 
work what this looks like in your life. Jesus is not obligated. He's free. He doesn't need to pay the temple tax, but he chooses to do it to not cause anyone to stumble. That word stumble or give offense means scandal on. That's, that's our word from it. It means to put something in the way of another person that they might trip over and fall and be hurt. And so he's saying that his, he doesn't want to be perceived. He doesn't want to help injure anybody by not paying the temple tax. For example, if he didn't pay the temple tax, somebody less mature, less godly might say, well, if he's not going to pay it, I'm going to pay. Or, you know what, maybe the sacrificial system isn't that big a deal. Uh, maybe we don't need to respect God and, and follow out the practices that God dictates. So in other words, Jesus could have meanings placed upon his behavior that would be unhelpful to other people. And so he goes ahead and pays the temple tax. But notice, so he's not just free. He's not just walking in massive humility. He lays aside his rights for the benefit and the love of others. But then thirdly, look at how he pays it. He tells Peter to cast a hook in the sea. This is the only time where a net's not used in in the scriptures, by the way, in fishing. He says, cast a hook into the sea and take the first fish that comes up. I was wondering about that. I may be over-interpreting here, but the first fish. You know, I wonder if, to the command of Jesus Christ, if all the fish didn't come up. I mean, the, why the first fish? How many are you going to catch on one hook? Maybe they were all fighting to the sound of the Lord of creation. Maybe they all came up. And he tells them, you take the first one. So here's the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. He knew and moved on some man to lean over the side of a of a a vessel where a coin would fall out of his pocket and it would just kind of flip and sparkle all the way down to the the floor of the Sea of Galilee and yet a fish would see it and would would take it into its mouth but not ingest it and then forever, how long, it would swim along until Jesus sends Peter to go fish. Peter, of his own doing, goes to the place that Jesus had designed the fish to be, throws his hook in, no bait on it, takes faith to fish without bait, throws a hook in without bait, Jesus appoints the fish with the gold shekel to take the hook to be taken up and to be paid. I mean, that's pretty incredible. It is hardly a trivial miracle. It's showing the absolute sovereign goodness of Jesus Christ, the power of God to help us walk in humility. And if you don't think it takes the power of God to walk in humility, then you haven't walked in it. So you have this beautiful example of Jesus who is in his freedom, moves with deference to the needs of others, and receives the provision of God to do it. And that's how we walk in the freedom that he has wrought for us. Do you understand that you're free? That's the first thing. You want to live in the freedom that comes as you consider the cross. So in other words, Jesus says to Peter, they're sons, then the sons are free. That's plural. Now, nobody's free like Jesus is, right? Jesus is the unique son of God. But we, by faith, are sons of God. Jesus speaks in the plural. That's us. In other words, by faith, we enter the family of God. We see that right Jesus' own words in John 1.12. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children, sons and daughters of God. And he says this, children not born of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they're born of God. God gives life 
to us to become children. So you have this idea. And not only that, do you see that Jesus had enough. The shekel is four drachmas. So that shekel that was in the fish's mouth paid for two people. So in Jesus paying for Peter, he's telling Peter, you're free too by faith. You're one of the sons of the king who are free. You're not obligated to pay the tax, but pay the tax in deference to others. So the reason we are free is because Jesus is our temple, right? Jesus and his sacrifice is what brought us into reconciliation with God. We don't need a temple anymore. Jesus knows the temple is going to go away. The temple will be destroyed in 70 AD. Now Jesus is the temple and we are living stones. So that's why you're free. You're not free because you've set yourself free. You're not free because you found some new philosophy to give you life. The person is only free as they come by repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Reconciled to God, sins are forgiven, a new relationship is established. Now you're free. And if you're in fact free, you're called to consider the, the cross. And I would encourage you, this is why we speak here about preach the gospel to yourselves every day. This news is such that it can become familiar, it can become old, and it's just put in the back of the closet and you forget about it. And then you get back to living the Christian life, not by faith, but by works. We're saved by faith and grace, but we survive by works. That's not what the scriptures teach. So I want to encourage you to live in freedom. You have to focus on the cross. You know, we have Memorial Day coming up. Memorial Day is set aside once a year. We remember those men and women who have died to serve us, to secure our freedom. Well, this even much more. Every day we think about it. When you get up in the morning, you think about, he bore my wrath. He bore my sins. He's removed from me the fear of death. It will spin your day differently, I promise you. It will cause the events of the day to pale in comparison to all the events of the week. Okay, the second thing I'd ask you to do is not just disciples live with freedom as they consider the cross, but disciples live with freedom as you walk in humility before one another. In other words, don't take your rights and your freedoms and your liberty and think that they work in a vacuum in your life. You are in the context of a community, and so your freedoms are not to be used in a way that can injure or hurt other people. Two warnings for you on this point. One would be to avoid license. In other words, you're not called, hey, I'm free in Christ. Perhaps it's drinking alcohol or it's going to movies. You know, the Fab Five of the 50s, which is, I think, drinking alcohol, dancing, card playing, movie going, and forget the first, the, the fifth one. I was raised Catholic, so we didn't have those. But, but the reality of it is we all have these standards of behaviors that you don't want to cross. And some of us, when you get a hold of the gospel, you think, I'm free now. I can do whatever I want. And our rights and the liberty that we may feel we have is not to be exercised in a manner that is unloving towards another. That I am called to be concerned, even at the expense of laying down my dreams or my rights or what I think I'm entitled to. And you know that you're suffering here if you tenaciously hold on to your right to do something. Then you're not understanding the context in which the freedom is to be drawn out. Paul says it very clearly in Galatians 5. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. In other words, constrained by love, I'm going to limit my freedoms for the benefit of another. Or he says the same thing in Romans 14. 
He says, if because of food your brother is hurt, this is in the context of eating meat that was sacrificed in an idol that some other Christian may have thought was an act of worship and you shouldn't eat that meat. If food because of an idol, sorry, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy him with your food for whom Christ died. So in other words, we're really called to be circumspect. I mean, look at your life, how you spend your money, how you treat your spouse. I mean, how you act, how do you behave around others with your liberties? Is it injuring them? Now, that's one warning, avoid license. The other warning is avoid legalism. Avoid legalism. What do I mean by that? Well, legalism is kind of seen in two ways. One way is this. Legalism, it's not a term you'll find in Scripture, but the idea is all through it. The idea of legalism is I'm going to obey some biblical standard or some set of conduct. And by my keeping of this conduct, God will be happy with me, or I'll have his favor. The, the legalist is always the moralist. The legalist is always a good person. But it's the person that is striving in his own power, not by faith, but because I need to do this so that God will be happy with me. And so we try to keep this. That's the legalist. The legalist also scrutinizes other people and are they living according to the standard? And if they're not, they don't have full participation in the church. Or they may get in the church, but they're kind of over there on the fringe. The legalist is always scrutinizing other people. Okay, so we want to avoid legalism here. Why? Because the weaker brother to whom I'm often to bend for his good that his weakness is not to depreciate away from the gospel. In other words, the gospel does give us liberty. It does give us freedom. The legalist wants to remove the freedom, not intentionally, not maliciously, but in, in over-applying a good, a good set of behaviors for conduct and causing everybody else to live that way, we remove our dependence on the gospel, and we fall in error. So what we can do is cause people to offend we can cause people to stumble either by what we permit or what we demand. We want to avoid both those. So this Christian liberty, this, this, this laying down our rights is for the purposes of the gospel and to help draw people to the gospel. Now, I want to remind you, the gospel will offend. The gospel does offend. And Jesus does offend as well. Jesus offended the Pharisees. He offended his family when they didn't accept him as the king that he was. He offended Caiaphas. He did offend. But when Jesus offends, it's never in defense of himself. It's always in protection of others. So we want to be careful to not offend. I tend to get most offensive when I'm being attacked. Do I have the same sense of righteousness when others are being either victimized by someone's license or someone's legalism? So where are we on that? Avoid license and avoid legalism. And then the last thing is that living in freedom means that we live in trust that we'll be able to do this. In other words, you see Jesus didn't have any money. The disciples didn't have any money. God provided for them to walk in humility. We need there's a supernatural extension of grace by God to help us lay down our rights. It's not easy. When you're sitting in the chair and you've worked all day and you don't want to get up and help your spouse in the house, and you don't think you, do, you don't need to, you shouldn't have to, because you've worked all day, are you willing to lay down your rights and get up and serve out of love? 
And we need God's grace to do that because we feel too easily self-justified. We don't want to lay down our rights. And we need the supernatural shekel in a fish's mouth. If he can do that, he can help you. You may be very, I need my time. I've given my time already. I don't want to give any more time. It's my right now. This is me time. But to lay that down in service and ministry to a spouse, to a child, to someone in the church, or money. No, 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 I've worked hard for this money. I don't want it. A cause has been brought to me. I don't want to move towards it. Why? Well, I've already given. This is my money. I worked hard for it. Well, maybe lay down that right and consider it differently. God, you have to give me the strength to part with what I deem as mine for someone else and for the better. So there's all kinds of ways we can pull this out. Uh, Let me just end with J.C. Ryle. He kind of brought up, J.C. Ryle was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He was a London preacher in the mid-19th century and Anglican bishop. But here's what he said as he kind of applied this. He said, look at it. Let me just read what he said. He says, let's remember the passage as citizens. Now, I don't think this really applies to our citizenship as much as Matthew 21 will but I still think it has a distant application. He says, we might not like all the political measures of our rulers. We may disapprove of some of the taxes they impose. But the grand question is, will it do any good to the cause of religion to resist the powers that be? Are the measures they really, are their measures really injuring our souls? If not, then let us hold our peace so that we might not offend. Or let us, As a church, he says, we may not like every jot and tittle of the forms and ceremonies used in our communion, or the music, or the preaching. We may not think that those who rule us in spiritual matters are always wise, but after all, are the points on which we are dissatisfied really of vital importance? Is there, this is a good question, is there any great truth of the gospel at stake? And then he says, let's remember this passage as members of society. There may be usages and customs in the circle where our lot has been cast, which to us as Christians are tiresome, useless, unprofitable. But are they matters of principle? Do they injure our souls? Will it do any good to the cause of religion if we refuse to comply with them? Perhaps patiently submit, lest we cause them to stumble. This is a hard word. You need fish with gold in its mouth to be able to measure up the strength to walk in this way. Let's take a minute now and just let me pray for us before we celebrate the table and ask God for grace in this endeavor. Father, we do thank you for your son who has modeled for us perfect freedom, humility, and trust in you to provide for him to walk in that humility. Father, help us even now, even now as I appeal to you, help us to appreciate the unfathomable cost that your son has paid to purchase us so that we have been redeemed from slavery and we are now free. We are free men and women through faith in your son. Father, help us even now. Appreciate that. Father, we confess if we haven't even thought about it this week. We confess to you if we have been just caught, distracted by the glittering of this world and we haven't even given thought or word to what you've done for us in your son, calling us to be free. In fact, Lord, we've returned to many of the enslavements of this world, even after you've freed us. Father, forgive us for that. Please open our eyes to the beauty of your son. And then, Lord, give us the grace to live in this freedom. 
Father, there are so many people here with so many different situations. Would you please, by your spirit, apply to them what it means to lay down their rights in the context? And then would you give them the reminder that you are sufficiently able to enable them to walk in that humility, that laying down the right, that giving way to serve another, to not walk in the freedom in a way that would cause another to stumble. So, Father, we know that only in Christ, and thankfully in Christ, we can appeal to you for this. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.